Welcome, everybody, to the 14th episode of Generation Jihad. I'm Tom Jocelyn, and I'm joined again this week with my colleague, Bill Rogio. Bill, say hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. We are senior fellows at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and we've been publishing FTD's Long War Journal for about 13 years uh, now. I can't believe it's been that long, Bill. It's kind of ridiculous. It's incredible. It really has been a long war. We, I think we did a good job when we named the website. Uh, well, it's been a long war to date. Of course, we, we're going to figure out where the U.S. goes from here. That's, that's a big concern about what the U.S. is going to do going forward. But as we've said in the previous podcast, the jihadis aren't going to stop fighting. It's an endless jihad. And, you know, during the time that we've been running FTD's Long War Journal, we've covered a number of jihadi groups, including both Sunni and Shiite terrorist organizations. And one of those is Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb. This is one of those organizations which I always wish I could do more, had more time to cover, because I think it's pretty interesting. And just this past week, the French government made a major announcement with respect to AQIM. Uh, Florence Parley, France's minister for the armed forces, tweeted that AQIM's longtime emir, Abdul Malik Drukdel, he's a guy who's also known as Abu Masab Abdel Wadud, had been killed in a counterterrorism operation in northern Mali on June 3rd. Now, that's a big deal. Um, this isn't going to end AQIM or the threat from al-Qaeda throughout the region, but Drukdel's a guy who goes way back. Um, there's no doubt that his, his uh, death is significant for al-Qaeda, both AQIM and al-Qaeda globally. Um, the thing is, you know, when we, when we cover these guys, when we talk about these al-Qaeda leaders, obviously there's sort of an endless train of them, right, Bill? I mean, we've been doing this for so long, and there's, there's, obviously guys are taken out time and time again, whether it be ISIS or al-Qaeda. But Drukdel is, is interesting because he's survived for so long when you get into his biography, which I'm going to get into a little bit here. This is one of those guys we talk about, and something you, you and I have talked about on previous podcasts, Bill, how some of these guys survive for two decades before they finally get taken out of action. Yeah, this guy has been involved in the in waging jihad since the 1990s, um, you know, with the uh, al- back in Algeria before before Al Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb, right? With, uh, so, you know, the, the, it's a common theme: the the resiliency of these groups, the deep bench, and the amount of time these guys get to lead before we get to whack them. Uh, you know, he has been in the game since the founding of al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb since 2006. Name me a U.S. military commander that has focused on a single theater and has led troops there um, for 14 years straight. So, yeah, he's an important player. He's very um, influential, as we're going to discuss, a very influential al-Qaeda leader, not just for AQIM, but for al-Qaeda Global. And, uh, yeah, his, his death hurts them, but... You know, Al-Qaeda certainly got their mileage out of him, and his deputies have been waiting to step up, and now they're going to get their chance. Yeah, and of course, as we're recording this, AQIM has not confirmed Drukdel's death, and that's always a caveat that we try and express to everybody to make sure everybody's clear on. And Drukdel is interesting because he goes back even before the founding of AQIM, of course. Uh, you know, when you look into his biography, you know, at first he was a bomb maker for the Armed Islamic Group, uh, which is commonly known by an acronym of its French name, or the GIA. In that role, the U.N. accused Drukdel of building, and this is a quote from the U.N. here, explosive devices that killed hundreds of civilians in attacks perpetrated in public areas. That's significant because later on, al-Qaeda and AQIM became very sensitive to civilian casualties. It's one of the ways that they sort of started to deviate a little bit or differentiate themselves from ISIS. And even before the rise of ISIS, they became concerned about that. Um, The GIA prefigured the rise of ISIS in some ways. It committed the same types of shockingly barbaric acts in the 1990s that ISIS would become notorious for some years later. Now, al-Qaeda and like-minded jihadis, they sought to revamp the jihad in the wake of the GIA's failures in Algeria and elsewhere. After the group alienated much of the population, Algerians were really going for the, the butchery and barbarism of the GIA. Now, this led to the formation of a group known as the Salafist Group for Preaching and, Co- and Combat, or GSPC. That's another acronym of a French name. And this was formed in the late 1990s. Drukdel assumed leadership of the GSPC in 2004. Just two years later, in September 2006, Drukdel announced his fealty to Osama bin Laden. And his oath of allegiance, or baya, which is something we talk about frequently, was accepted by Ayman al-Zawahiri. That led in late 2006 and early 2007 to the GSPC being rebranded as al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. Now, some analysts and commentators claim that AQAM was never really al-Qaeda, right, Bill? We heard this. We heard this a lot from 2007 onward, especially for the next several years after AQAM was formally launched. It's not really al-Qaeda. Um, and we disagreed with that for a lot of reasons. Yeah, this is just part of the the disconnect the dots um, 
uh, paradigm that exists in our field. It's very frustrating. What happens when the leader of a group swears allegiance to uh, um, to Osama bin Laden and its fighters, you know, swear allegiance to that individual? Um, you know, it makes them Al Qaeda. It's pretty simple, um, but people want to want to ignore it or reject it. Yeah, and beyond the bia, I mean, of course, we knew that there was plenty of evidence or connective tissue between. AQIM and Al-Qaeda senior leadership. We're going to talk about some of that connective tissue today because that's often overlooked. Um, and, you know, this becomes an especially important argument to revisit what Bill and I, or what I've called dis- the disconnected dots analysis that say AQIM isn't really part of Al-Qaeda. There's a lot of reasons that's wrong uh, and has been wrong all along. But, you know, when France announced Dell's death, they said something very interesting. They said that not only was the emir of AQIM, but that he was a member of Al-Qaeda's management committee, and that he was Ayman al-Zawahiri's third deputy. Hmm, isn't that interesting? Now, I reached out to U.S. Africa Command for a uh, sort of follow-up to see if they could confirm this. They confirmed Drugdell's death previously, uh, didn't confirm these details. They emphasized AQAM and Shabab are part of al-Qaeda's network, but didn't really confirm these specific details. I think that's a mistake. I think U.S. military leadership should be educating people on what's going on here. That's sort of a general frustration you and I have, Bill, right, is that there's no real push within U.S. military circles to explain what's going on. And it seems like the clock is running out on a lot of this. Yeah. I mean, look, the French don't have a reason to lie about this. Uh, that's for sure. If the U.S. military knows this, if at, at U.S. AFRICOM or Africa Command is aware of this in, information and can confirm it, there's no reason that we shouldn't be given a confirmation on that. Instead, it just seems like, um, you know, the military is just sort of running the clock out on this thing. So... You know, this isn't really surprising to us that the head of AQAM, which is one of Al-Qaeda's regional branches, as they call it, would also be a member of Al-Qaeda's senior leadership team. Um, and the reason why it isn't surprising is it's because we've documented this phenomenon in the past, and we documented it specifically when it came to AQAP. You remember, Bill, going through the evidence and the files and public statements and other sort of sources of intelligence and evidence on this guy. The Nazar al-Hashi served as al-Qaeda's uh, general manager, and then he was later identified as the deputy emir, in fact, of al-Qaeda globally. He was the former aide-de-camp to Osama bin Laden, a co-founder of AQAP, that's al-Qaeda in the uh, Arabian Peninsula. And he's somebody who was clearly part of al-Qaeda's management team, and we we identified other guys around him who were, who were likely part of al-Qaeda's uh, senior management team. And we've talked in a previous episode of the podcast, we talked about Qasem al-Raimi, who was, who was killed uh, in January of this year. Al-Raimi was probably a part of the Al-Qaeda senior management team, and his replacement, Halid Batarfi in Yemen, is probably a member of Al-Qaeda senior management team. So we don't really find this surprising at all, but we do find it odd that we just can't get the U.S. government to actually confirm what's going on, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, look, I, I think it should be pretty clear uh, at this point in time, if you're the head of one of Al-Qaeda's um, a, a branches, it's very likely they're on Al-Qaeda's management team uh, and uh, probably some senior deputies from each branch as well. It, it, it makes sense. Uh, Al-Qaeda is looking to coordinate its activities uh, globally and, and regionally. And so, yeah, there's no when when you passed along that bit of information that Drew Dell was on Al-Qaeda's management committee and third deputy Zawahiri, I mean, that's just a shoulder shrug moment for me. It's um, it's kind of what I expected. Yeah, and I agree. I mean, listen, we've talked to sources who say that Al-Qaeda formed a cross-regional Shura Council that includes members of the so-called affiliates. Now, the affiliates really in Al-Qaeda scheme are regional branches which are waging jihad in their designated areas to um, lay the groundwork for resurrecting emirates, which would then link up to become a caliphate. Now, this has been dismissed as a fantasy uh, by Western policymakers on a number of occasions previously, of course, with the rise of ISIS, everybody had to take the caliphate, the drive to build a caliphate more seriously. And this, but this has been Al Qaeda's goal all along. We're going to talk a little bit about that more today. Um, but this idea that uh, that we're talking about with the cross regional Shura Council that incorporates members of Al Qaeda's so called affiliates, which we really refer to as Al Qaeda does as regional branches, this is yet another reason why this hardline distinction between Al Qaeda's quote unquote core and affiliates led to this false dichotomy in counterterrorism circles that we. We've sought to debunk on a number of occasions because it just doesn't hold water. I mean, everybody now admits and concedes that AQAP, which is far afield from Afghanistan and Pakistan, that they are, in fact, do have members and senior leaders who are part of Al-Qaeda's senior management team. We now have the French saying that, you know, Abdul Malik Jerkdel is a part of Al-Qaeda's senior management team. I mean, what's the big deal here? We should be able to get to a common sense sort of empirical uh, evidence-based uh, analysis and, and definition of Al-Qaeda. But that leads me to 
you know, basically what we're going to talk about today a little bit, Bill, on all this stuff. You know, you and I, we're going to do a, a future podcast on this. You can add, if you're one of our dedicated listeners, you can add this to the list of things Tom said we're going to do an episode on. <laughs> I now have a, I now have a, I now have a running list which you can, you can hang me with later on. Uh, but you know, one of the things that Bill and I advocated in Washington and sort of fought uphill on was the release, the public release of all of Osama bin Laden's files. These are all the files found during the May 2011 raid in Abbottabad, Pakistan, that. Um, you know, that led to Bin Laden's death. He was killed by U.S. Navy SEALs, and those Navy SEALs scooped up just an extremely large amount of media. And why do we advocate for the release? Well, there's some conspiracy theories out there. We'll debunk those in a future episode as well. There's some real nonsense. I mean, you can bleep out what I would actually want to say about it, but I'll just, we'll just say it's to be polite. Um, but as a, the real reason why we advocated for the release of those files is because as incredible as it may sound, the U.S. and its allies never came up with a uniform definition of al-Qaeda. Not even the nearly two decades since 9-11. I mean, there's still widespread disagreement over how Al-Qaeda is structured, how it works. And we've argued that Osama bin Laden's files and other recovered document caches, and there are other ones, um, are crucial for understanding how the organization works because these are primary source documents that are not meant for public consumption. This is how they're talking to each other behind the scenes. And it gives you insights into how they're structured and how they work. And lo and behold, one of the things we find out by going through bin Laden's files, and I was looking through this, we're recording this on a... A Friday afternoon, and I was looking through this the last couple nights in preparation of this podcast. You find AQAM all over the files, right, Bill? I mean, this is you, yeah. you find all sorts of files involving Al Qaeda, Islamic Maghreb, and how it works uh, within Al Qaeda's scheme, going back to immediately. You know, we're going to focus today on the period right after the GSPC becomes AQAM in 2006 and 2007. There's a series of files from there on that you can see that this wasn't just uh, rhetoric. This wasn't just sort of something they said in name only. They just they just claimed to be Al-Qaeda name only. But there's all sorts of connective tissue there uh, between these two that, that's worth documenting. And this is something Bill and I are going to talk a little bit about today. I mean, does that make sense to you as a way to structure this bill that that's basically, you know, why we're going to talk about these files? And it's tough. We're going to go through these files with you guys on the podcast. We're going to publish them at Long War Journal as well. And, and once I get my act together and get my uh, <laughs> get my published analysis done. But we're going to we're going to go through this a little bit today and, 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 and talk about it because I think it's worth talking about in a way that listeners can understand to make these make these characters pop, make them understand why it matters. Right. Yep, that's absolutely correct. I mean, these documents, the the Bin Laden files and and other documents recovered are key to understanding the group and and key to understanding how AQIM fits into the into Al Qaeda's global scheme. Uh, you know, again, I'm just going to say it again. It's in, you know, when Bin Laden's files were recovered, there was very little interest in in getting them released and going through them. And actually, most of the effort was to to bury the Bin Laden files. You know. Uh, we led the charge, as you said, to, to get these released. Really, Tom did a fantastic job um, just fighting and fighting to get this done. And they're released, and, and again, and people still don't care. It's like it didn't really change anything. No, I mean, basically, it's it satiated our our quest to yes. get the files, but it didn't change the analysis or analytical framework one one iota. And we we didn't do this just for us. We hope other people would pick up on the files and go through them. And there's been very minimal, I would say, effort. There's to do too that. many files for us to all go, to go through. We'd need a team yeah. of a hundred people to, in order to go through each and every file. Be, yeah, I, I even saw something on Twitter of somebody claiming that one of his colleagues had gone through them all. I'm like, no, you gotta be kidding me. You don't have you don't have any idea what you're looking at if you're claiming that yeah. you know there's so much material there um but but still look we have enough files to say something about this intelligent not just one or two but you know dozens and we're going to talk about a handful we're going to talk about a handful from that set because i can't go through every single one of them on this podcast we can we can drone you to death on this stuff just by you listening to all the different gnome de guerres and all the ins and outs but let's give you a brief summary let's give listeners a brief summary of some of the stuff that caught our eye going through the files all right bill yep all right so let's start off with so now this is right after the GSPC becomes AQIM in 2006 and 2007, as I said. There's a file that was sent to Osama bin Laden, which is, it's actually, we're going to talk about the addendum to a larger file. And in and, and the ODNI, this is the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, in their infinite wisdom, they didn't actually put out complete chains of correspondence when they released some of these files to the public between 2015 and 2017. So... Um, you know, basically, we're, we're trying to put together these chains of correspondence. And what we're going to talk about is really the addendum to another file that wasn't identified in, in, in one of these releases. And this addendum is written by Yunus al Maratani. This is one of your favorites back in the days, Bill. Oh, we covered, yeah. Uh, yeah. We covered his capture, capture in Pakistan, which we'll get to in a second. But Yunus al Maratani is an interesting figure because um, he's somebody who, according to the Treasury Department, the U.S. government, which 
designated him in 2011 based in, in part on what was found in Osama bin Laden's files. He's somebody who went from negotiating the formal merger of GSPC into Al-Qaeda's ranks, making it AQAM, and then he went on to become a leading member of AQ senior leadership's external operations arm. And, you know, we know from the files that are captured, and, and including a number that we're not going to talk about today, and some of them we are, that Osama bin Laden endorsed and funded, you know, his plan. This is Yunus al Tony's plan to conduct Mumbai-style attacks in Europe in 2010, 2011. And that multiple of the files recovered in bin Laden's compound were Mauritani's reports to bin Laden about this and other plans to attack the West. So this is a guy who, um, you know, he went from, you know, people, if you argued, well, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb is not really Al-Qaeda. Here's a guy who actually negotiated the merger of the GSBC to become AQAM, and he becomes a senior AQ figure, not just within its sort of regional scheme or regional architecture, but actually with an eye and a responsibility and a role of trying to attack the West. So, Bill, we, we looked through this file, and it's a summary of the Unity Initiative. I was wondering if you were looking through it, what you, if you thought any, thought anything popped out to you. Um, a couple things popped out to me. I'll give you a first crack at it. Yeah, you know, look, I mean, really, the first paragraph is what popped out at me because they, they say um, they say the brothers in what used to be the Salafist group for call and combat. Well, that's they used to be because they became – Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. I mean, when you look at that, you have no, it's full confirmation right then and there. I mean, yes, of course, we have the bio and, and we know the, the, the cross-pollinization and leaders. But, you know, I just, I've read that, you know, then they say this unity and consolidation of the ranks under the term Al-Tawid created the support yeah, that the caliphate yeah. state was based on, Right. I mean, yep. Al Tawhid, yeah. Mon- yep. I mean, monotheism, the monotheism banner, right? Creative support that the Caliphate State was based on. Exactly right. I mean, right from the get go, it's saying, hey, this is all about building the architecture for a new Caliphate. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, and, and we're told that Al Qaeda isn't interested in a Caliphate. Well, why does Al Qaeda have its regional branches? It has its regional branches in order to support its ultimate goal of reestablishing the caliphate. It all says it right there in the first paragraph of, of this. And, and, you know, I look at that and, the, you know, to me, the rest here is details. They're talking about fighters. We got these many Moroccans and now we have this and we're putting them here and we're putting them there. But when I'm, when I'm reading these documents, like that's, that to me is what pops out first and foremost. Yeah. And, you know, and just go through the document. I mean, of course it's, it's, trumpeting the unity initiative which is the gspc becoming aqam and becoming formally part of al-qaeda and so you can read it from perspective that Yunus al martani is trying to really pump up the whole idea of what's going on here and maybe that's the case but it's interesting that you know i mean of course he credits sheikh abu abdullah who is bin laden um for for coming up with this initiative which was meant to strike both the the far enemy and the near enemy which basically meant to strengthen the jihadi's ranks and then he says it was carried out by Dr. Ayman al-Zawahiri. So it basically was blessed and endorsed by bin Laden that this was going to happen. But then the actual carrying out of the act was carried out by Ayman al-Zawahiri. Now that's interesting because we're going to get into that, that Zawahiri has been playing a big role in managing these regional branches and affiliates all along. Right, Bill? Yep, that's exactly correct. I mean, we know that with Shabab, right? He would he actually wanted al-Shabab, which of course is al- al-Qaeda's branch in East Africa, um, to publicly declare its allegiance, it was done privately. But Zawahiri was a, was an advocate for making a public. Bin Laden, of course, um, and we, found we think this. it was we think it was Zawahiri anyway because it, that happened. You know, there was an, a file that was authored that seems to be authored by him. Yes, yeah, he kinda, right, right. So, but the yeah. issue issue between them that people got wrong was it wasn't that Al Qaeda or Bin Laden was rejecting Shabab's oath of or buyout or oath of allegiance. That's not what he said. He just didn't want to make it public. Whereas Zawahiri, we yeah. presume it's Zawahiri wanted to make it public. Yeah, because he was that wrong. Bin Laden was yeah. afraid that aid groups would stop distributing aids in famine-stricken areas where Shabab controlled. And and yeah. that's, you know, that's a quite, a, you know, strategic thinking there from Bin Laden. Yep. And now going through this file, um, I was struck too, because one of the things that, that Yunus Al-Maratani says to Bin Laden in this file is that Abu Musab al-Zarqawi students arrived as well. Who and this is a quote now, and they wouldn't be satisfied with anything other than VBIEDs and the suicide tax. So vehicle-borne improvised explosive devices and suicide tax. And he says because this generation was raised at the hands of the inter- on the at the hands of the internet through Al Shabab, which is Al Qaeda senior leadership's main uh, media hub, and Al Furqan, which is of course the Islamic State of Iraq, and then the Islamic State 
uh, his central leadership's main media hub, and other productions, showing that they were basically still considered part of the same sort of architecture at the same at that time. Now, we know from an interview that Druckdell gave in the New York Times, I think it was in 2008, that Zarqawi actually did play a role in brokering the formal merger of GSPC and Al-Qaeda's ranks. He said that actually in the press. And this is, again, this type of connective tissue where Zarqawi is playing a role in not only leading the jihad in Iraq at the time, this is obviously prior to his death in mid-2006, but he's also brokering these connections and these ties and these and these relationships and communications between North and West Africa, all the way back to Al-Qaeda senior leadership. Yeah, and look, I mean, of course we were told Zarqawi you know, wasn't part of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, in Iraq if you'd listen to the, what the Islamic State claims. Um, that, of course, is just yet another piece of evidence. And look, Zarqawi had, you know, aside from being influential, a lot of individuals from North, leaders and fighters from North Africa came to fight in Iraq. And so that gave him a lot of pull as well with, um, he had a lot of connective tissue there between the uh, AQIM and AQ, Al-Qaeda in Iraq because of, of that cross-pollinization of fighters as well. Yeah, you know, and, and Mortani in this file, he goes through um, some of the different initiatives taken by the Algerian government to try and end the jihad, and you know, he, he gives them credit in some respects and then sort of says that basically Al-Qaeda's uh, scheme here is going to undo the, the Algerian government's efforts and the efforts by others, presumably throughout the region. Um, you can also see in the file, uh, which is also interesting, is that Abu al-Abbas, now we know who that is. Abu al-Abbas is, of course, Mukhtar al-Mukhtar, um, another al-Qaeda commander who had a strained relationship with Drukdel at times. But Maritani's talking about Abu al-Abbas's key role in all this. And you can see from this file and other files that Mukhtar himself is you know, clearly part of al-Qaeda's scheme all along. Yeah, uh, yeah, the, that falling out, I can't remember what year that was. It was in the mid-2010s uh, where he actually briefly left al-Qaeda and then formed his own group, uh, Al Morbatun. Well, he, he left AQIM. He left AQIM. He, he yes, didn't, leave, didn't leave Al Qaeda. He was still part of Al Qaeda. Right. Reported right. directly right. to Zarqawi. And then they, then they had Zawahiri. some. Zawahiri. Yeah. Zawahiri, I'm sorry. And then they had some uh, some type of uh, a rapprochement at some point, and he rejoined the ranks at AQIM. And by the way, we still don't know what the status of uh, Mukhtar, Bal Mukhtar is. Uh, yeah, I think he's dead, but I think you know, so too. Look, but we had never I mean, I mean, if I, had a, if I were a betting man, of course I'd bet he was, he was gone. But again, like you said, Bill, these guys like zombies you know until you get the cut off their head and put a stick through their hearts you're just never really sure yeah, you know he was reported dead so long ago and yet they never issued him i think he was he certainly is important enough to to be uh named right to get a martyrdom statement but yeah you know but al-qaeda's been happen. squirrely yeah and al-qaeda's been squirrely about yeah, that they have, you know i mean yeah. there, there's a lot a lot now there are a lot of there are a lot of uh, presumed bodies that haven't been recognized by yeah. al-qaeda senior leadership you know hamza bin laden number one asim yeah. Omar, you know, uh, you know, there's just a, there's a whole string of them you can point to where, and we'll get into a little bit about some of these guys in a minute here. But yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, who knows? I mean, at the end of the day, unless you're basically there for forensic confirmation or you have a picture of the body or you have some sort of definitive confirmation, it's always it's always tough. There's always ambiguity. But yeah, I mean, I think there's a plenty of reporting and evidence that he most likely is dead at this yeah. point. Um, so. You know, moving on. So this is a guy. Now, what I thought was interesting, we're going revisiting Yunus Salmaratani's um, sort of brief dossier and profile, is that he was captured in Pakistan in sometime around early September 2011. And we know that the Bin Laden files were used to identify exactly how important he was in Al Qaeda's scheme, and he was captured not in Afghanistan or somewhere else, but in Pakistan. Um, now, Bill. <laughs> This goes to show this guy, Yunus al-Maratani, he's in Pakistan after all these years, and he's planning against the West, and he's playing a lead role against the West. And, you know, this is this shows that after all those years that al-Qaeda still had enough juice in Pakistan to basically keep a network going, even the external operations part of its network going, uh, of course, up till his capture. Yeah, right. And look, the, the Pakistanis said at the time, you got to take anything the Pakistanis say with a, with a grain of salt, but he said he was, this is a quote, tasked personally by Osama bin Laden to focus on hitting targets of economical importance in the United States of America, Europe, and Australia. You know, uh, there's one other interesting thing, and I realize I'm sort of digressing a little bit, uh, but... Hey, it's our podcast. You can digress yeah, all you want. You know, to. it's funny. We they get well, bin not Laden. All you want. We don't want to do it all. We don't want to digress too much. I mean, I can go <laughs> off on a tangent too. We could be, we could talk about the 1986 New York Football Giants if you want, but nobody cares. A pick and shovel team, giants among men. 
the or the 2018 Eagles championship. I'd love to discuss that. And they're going to snap it, and it's Trey Burton who throws caught. Foles touchdown. No, no. I, okay, that and that's the end of the digression. But go ahead. <laughs> so the. Um, you know the Pakistanis catch him after bin after Bin Laden is uh, killed in the raid because of, because the United States presents enough evidence on this guy that the Pakistanis are forced to act. If the Pakistanis had their way, you know, guys like Yunus Martani would still be walking around Pakistan. I have no doubt about that. Uh, I know there there was a lot of pressure on Pakistan after the Bin Laden raid to clean up some of these guys, and you had individuals killed in drone strikes. And the in the, but you know, look, it, he was a very very influential figure within Al Qaeda, and his links to AQIM. You know, I, this this was a big big capture for the United States, and you know, to it, it he um, like you, you had mentioned, he's he's one of my favorites because he puts a lot of these pieces of the puzzle together. He's that piece of the puzzle that you need to get everything to connect, and and that's always how I viewed him. And uh, the Bin Laden files have borne this out. Yeah, he was a big capture, and you know, eventually, of course, instead of being um, brought to the U.S. and tried. Um, he was repatriated to his native country of Mauritania. <laughs> now, uh, why is that interesting or why is that uh, potentially problematic? Well, we have another file to go to. So that first Unis, that first document we're talking about from Yunus al-Mauritani, which um, again illustrates the connective tissue between what became known as AQAM and AQ senior leadership, that was authored sometime around 2006. Here's another file a little bit later in which – um, it's relayed to Osama bin Laden that Drukdel, the uh, the late great Abdul Malik Drukdel, the former Emir of AQIM, had sent correspondence um, discussing a proposed truth of Mauritania. Mauritania, I'm sorry, a proposed truth of Mauritania, and Mauritani had been involved in these efforts too. I'm sorry, now, I'm, now it's going to get confusing for lead listeners. Let's call him Yunus. Tom. Let's call him. We'll Yunus. call him Yunus. That's a good way of doing it. Yeah, th- thank you. Good for that. Yeah, because otherwise we'll get to it. anyway. In any event, Drukdel proposed this truce with Mauritania. Um, in a letter to AQ senior leadership, and AQ senior leadership decides to basically go about um, determining whether or not this would be kosher, and uh, they determined it was, in fact. And you can see in this file that um, that essentially that Al Qaeda was very much willing to negotiate with the apostate governments as long as it was going to basically further their objectives and their overall strategy. Now, this is a little bit problematic. I mean, this shows that this is not, you know, that Al-Qaeda is much more sophisticated when it comes to this stuff than people give them credit for. You can see in this file, Bill, that some of the names who were involved in, in evaluating this, I mean, you've got guys like, you know, Sheikh Abu Yahya Libby. You've got um, Haji Uthman, who was, uh, Uthman, who was um, you know, one of the main senior figures around bin Laden and subsequently he's killed. You got Sheikh Mahmoud, who's Atiyah Abdul Rahman. yep. Yep. Yeah, and they yep. got others, you know. I mean, this is a who's who of the Al-Qaeda senior leadership is looking into this and is deciding to bless this idea that they can have a truce with Mauritania. Um, that's problematic. I mean, and it also shows, sort of lays the groundwork for what Al-Qaeda is trying to do in West Africa right now, where Drukdel helps stood up, stand up this new outfit known as the Group for the Support of Muslims in Islam, which sounds, of course, all sorts of nice and friendly and they're anything but... And they've been fighting in Mali and West Africa for a few years now. They've reached out and, and been willing to negotiate with the Malian government as long as the French get out of the area, right? Because this shows they're willing to negotiate with these so-called apostate governments as long as they can strike deals that benefit them. But this is this is very different, I think, than what the public perception of al-Qaeda is. Don't you think, Bill, that this is a sort of a key insight here, that they're willing to play these political games and machinations in order to further their, their agenda? Yeah, look, they, they have to get a religious ruling, and that's what they say. They they. they were tasked to write a legal legal research on the truce. That's a quote. Um, so they, this has to be religiously based. So they're and you know their determination was yes, is you know we you can you are relig- you know religiously this is approved. And again, as you mentioned, um, as long as it's uh, you know it, it furthers their goals. The you know I've, one of the things that strikes me at this time, the, the, I, I recall reports that the the Mauritanian government was terrified of what uh, AQIM was doing at that time. They were attacking military bases. They were, and they just didn't have the manpower to fight it, to, to fight it. So they were, they would do a truce. And, you know, so we shouldn't be shocked that Al Qaeda agrees with the Taliban 
to conduct a withdrawal deal with the United States because it furthers the Taliban's goal. That's how you know the deal is good because Al Qaeda signs off on it. And, you know, um, yeah. And by the way, I mean, there could be, I'm sure, I mean, listen, the, the jihadis we've talked about, they're not automatons. No. They're not robots. I mean, I'm sure there's, there's, there's dissent. I'm sure there are people within the ranks that don't get it, that don't want to have the Taliban negotiate with the uh, U.S. at all, right? But I mean, formally and officially, Al Qaeda's endorsed that deal. And I don't see any reason why to think that that's sort of out of bounds for them, given this piece of evidence and other pieces of evidence that they're willing to do this. Yeah. And look, to me, this is why Al Qaeda is, oh, um, will always be a far more dangerous group than the Islamic State. It's willing to use all levers of power, you know, to, it's um, it's willing to use, this is a form of Al-Qaeda diplomacy, it's a, for, for Al-Qaeda, right? They're, they're willing to use that to further their goals, where the Islamic State just w- will fight its way to achieve its goals. It won't consider any other means in order to... Um, to further itself. So that's why I've always viewed Al-Qaeda as far more dangerous. And um, The Islamic State may be willing to conduct more deadly attacks or, you know, attacks on civilians, things of that nature. But strategically, Al-Qaeda, you know, tops it out. And documents like this is what lead me to believe that. Yeah, I, I, the way I would put it is I think this is a very mature insurgent perspective. Yes. Right? That they basically know that they have to um, sort of keep um, at bay certain where they can cut deals they will to keep their long to, to assist in basically achieving their long-term goals which is about building an emirate in the region and we're going to get to that in a second again in one of these other documents but this document shows a very much more much mature perspective from an insurgency they understand what they're doing they understand how to, to use political levers in order to further their goals they don't just have to go out and attack um, you know that they can use they can use violence and the threat of violence to achieve those political goals as well and this document lays out you know sort of the details is the quid pro quo between AQIM and the Mauritanian government. You know, they say, you know, as long as we don't commit any attacks, military attacks in Mauritania, they're going to, you know, and they're going to agree not to intercept any of the Mujahideen or cause evil in the country. And they're not going to intercept the seekers of knowledge, which basically means that AQ is going to get this ability to proselytize throughout Mauritania. Mm -hmm. Um, which is very dangerous. Probably the most important part of that whole agreement. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the part that, and, and people got that wrong, of course, during the so-called Arab uprisings. Remember, you know, everybody was thinking, well, Al-Qaeda's not, you know, attacking necessarily, you know, in all these different places, you know, so therefore these local outfits are just, they're not really Al-Qaeda, they're Ansar al-Sharia. Well, that was all rubbish. I mean, we knew that, that Al-Qaeda wanted to use the political vacuums that were created in the Arab uprisings to proselytize for their cause. And that's a very dangerous thing to do because it basically is converting more people who ultimately can become terrorists or jihadists for them in, in, in these different theaters. Yep, that's absolutely correct, Tom. And it, I've always viewed the are ignoring the their ideology, ignoring their proselytizing um, as to be our greatest weakness of uh, religion's icky to the to Americans, and therefore we're just going to pretend that that's not part of this equation, but it's the biggest part of this equation. Yeah, I mean, and it, I mean, you can see in this document that they had to have a religious ruling, as you said, for figuring out if this was all going to be kosher for them. They also, you know, came to other terms. You know, the um, basically there was a one year effective um, term for the agreement, and it was subject to renewal. And that the government of Mauritania was going to give them ten to twenty million euros annually, not, not, you know, pretty good chunk of change, um, so long as the contract was in effect. Um, you know, and it, and basically it was going to keep going on like this. You know, and this was basically the bottom line from them was they saw at this time was they could have this truce with Mauritania, and otherwise they could focus on Algeria and other and other issues. Um, yeah. and. To, you know, to put it in mob terms, Tom, this was protection money. With the, in the agreement, they said they'll get ten to twenty million dollars in exchange. Um, it'll prevent the kidnapping of tourists. So, uh, Al Qaeda, you know, th- th- that's just how it how it's going to be for them. Though, you know, you pay us, and we won't attack you. We won't kidnap your tourists. We won't do this. We won't do that. Yep, and then they use Mauritania as basically a rear base, as they said, a safe rear base. Yep. So this is the t- this is, again sophisticated strategic thinking on all this. Now, lo and behold, after this file came out, Abu Hafs al Mauritani, a famous once upon a time Al Qaeda ideologue in, in pre nine eleven Afghanistan, he confirmed that it actually went into effect <laughs> that this actually did happen. This this truce between the two, um, boy, is that fascinating. And I again, this well, isn't one of those you know, we, and, and, and we know it because the violence ceased. 
in Mauritania. Yeah. You stopped receiving reports of jihadist attacks and kidnappings. They moved on. And, um, yeah, so, you know, you, when you put all the pieces of the puzzle together, you know, Abu Hafs gives us the uh, the final confirmation that this goes through. And um, it's amazing. You, it makes you wonder if that uh, truce is still in existence today. Well, and what other truces are they willing to cut? What other deals are they willing to cut? You know, I mean, we, we saw, we documented this in some of the other bin Laden files that bin Laden signed off with a truce with the Pakistani government, yep. you know, because they were using violence through the Pakistani Taliban and others to to ratchet up the pressure on Pakistani government officials. And there's sort of this back and forth you could see in the files about whether or not um, Al-Qaeda was going to agree to a truce so they could concentrate on their other enemies. And the endorsement came down from bin Laden and Atiyah Abdel Rahman that that was in their interest to do that. And Pakistani officials said, some politicians said that, in fact, the truce had been enacted. So again, this is where the value in the files is, understanding how this all works, that you're seeing a, a sophisticated actor here who, despite all of its shortcomings and problems and flaws and setbacks, um, is is thinking about the world in the way you know beyond just hijacking planes and 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 committing bombings. You know they're they're looking at things politically. Yeah, their their ultimate goal is the establishment of the cal of the caliphate, um, and they'll do what it takes. Um, if it means cutting a deal with an infidel government, they'll do that. If it means fighting them and you know bombings in cities and attacking military, they'll do that too. And so, again, it's you know I'm, I'm, I know I'm repeating myself, but it's what makes them the more dangerous, the more sophisticated terrorist group. Yeah, I, I would say more sophisticated insurgency group in some ways is what I would say. Yes, you know? it's a terrorist insurgency. Yes, right, right. Yeah, I mean I, because it, it, the terrorist component of this is is uh, subset. You know. Yeah. Yeah, right. And it's it's sort of a interesting conundrum there and to turn away the threats from these different groups. But we'll put that aside for a second. So let's move on to the next one. So one of the other ones we highlight going through prepping for the show this week um, is this letter from Osama bin Laden, or we think it's from Osama bin Laden, presumably from bin Laden, to Drukdel himself. Um, and it, the author, again, presumably bin Laden, mentions that Drukdel's letters had arrived and showing they were in regular contact. This is one of the pieces of evidence they were in regular contact. And I thought what I pulled out of this file, and again, we're, I, once again, my act together, I'm going to post all these in order at uh, Long War Journal so people could follow along. It'd be great if you could do that right now, wouldn't it be, folks? But that that, re- that requires me uh, having my act together a lot more than I do right now. I've got too many things going on in the middle of a pandemic and all sorts of craziness. Um, but what I pulled out of this bill was this language I sent you, um, this key quote yeah. about target selection, right? So here's another myth-busting moment for us. Um, there's this false dichotomy that grew up in counterterrorism circles that Al-Qaeda was really only interested in attacking the foreign enemy, meaning the West and, and, and America and America's allies, and that it didn't really want to get embroiled in attacking the local enemies at all. Well, Bill, take a look at this quote and what stands out to you right away. I mean, it's just, it's right there, isn't it, in plain black and white, from, yeah. presumably from bin Laden. Yep. What does he say? I'll let you, I'll let you go and delve in. Yeah, what I mean, I think the, the one, your brothers continue in bold operations against the global and local infidels, and we will be happy because of it. I mean, that's the one that, you know, if it is possible to strike the targets far away from the innocents, then it would be desired to target that place. So they're, they're, they're telling you right here, um, you know, fight locally, fight globally. Uh, it's a... You know, and nothing, look, the reality is, is more Muslims have been killed by Al-Qaeda and, of course, the Islamic State as well, than far, far more than than Westerners and, America, and Americans. So, um, you know, we didn't, you and I didn't need to see this. This is merely confirmation of what we already know, but it's always nice to, to be able to read it. Yeah, and I mean, this author, again, presumably Bin Laden, he, he writes, you know, choosing and identifying priorities in which, one, which ones we will begin with. You know who's the greatest infidel apostate today, he says, but this doesn't mean that it's the greatest destroyer of all time in every place. So in other words, he's saying your target selection is going to change, right? Who you're going to hit on any given time, you know, and he said, you know, it's possible to strike targets away from the innocents, then it would be desirable to target that place. In other words, he's saying, you know, again, this is the Al-Qaeda concern with not hitting and killing innocents. Earlier, I mentioned that the UN had fingered Drukdel for bombings that killed hundreds of civilians. Here's the Al Qaeda. Once you come in the Al Qaeda fold, uh, that's you know they're, they're trying to avoid that as much as they can because they see that as something that in in these Muslim majority countries is going to turn off the population they're trying to convert to their cause. Yeah, and look, the you know the GIA that that the collapse of that whole jihad in Algeria that's a very touchy issue. 
um, within jihadist circles and particularly Al-Qaeda. So they studied that. And I always found it ironic that Drukdel, who played a very significant role in the making of bombs to kill um, thousands of civilians, winds up being the guy who leads or Al-Qaeda. hundreds in, anyway. Yeah, hundreds. Hundreds, anyway, I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah, who winds up being leading Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. But, you know, obviously... The guy grew and, you know, but here you have, which we, again, we believe is Osama bin Laden, continue to counsel him and, and, and keep him on the path, the Al-Qaeda path, so to speak. Yeah. Now, after this, one other thing about this file before we move on, and again, wouldn't it be great if you guys could read along with us? Uh, so I'm going to have to make that priority this weekend, maybe before the show comes out, I'll try and get this up or, or at least afterwards. Some, sometimes you can follow along and, and listen to what we're saying because um, I've got other files too. But you could see in this, this, the author, and this is one of the reasons why we think it's Bin Laden wrote it, is because he's writing from a, a, a position of authority, yes. clearly, um, above everybody in Al-Qaeda's scheme. Um, and he, he, he gives a nugget here. He says, look, you know, there's, this is a direct quote now. There are some obstacles in the correspondence of letters between the brothers and me. So any message is sent to me, please send a copy to Abu Muhammad, meaning Zawahiri, because that's Zawahiri's code name, his gnome daguerre, his alias in these correspondence. Please send a copy to you know Abu Muhammad Sheikh Ayman al Zawahiri, and then it says he is in constant contact with the brothers and is in charge of following up with the affairs in the Islamic Maghreb. Well, isn't that interesting? Again, this goes back to the idea that um, you know Zawahiri has been managing these affiliates, so-called regional branches, for many, many years. Yeah, look, and um, what really sticks out with me with that? Remember when at the time of Bin Laden's death, you had. A- op-ed in the i believe it was the washington post saying that bin laden was a lion in winter and basically stuck in his in his little house and uh disconnected well bin laden's saying he's getting correspondence sometimes there's problems in getting them but we're getting them but just in case you know copy cc zawahiri um he should he's the guy in charge anyway and you know and by the way this you're absolutely correct the way you the way this letter reads it's 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 adv- advice it's a it's reads like a letter from a mentor um i can't think of someone who would i can't think of anyone within al-qaeda who'd be able to say well send me a letter but also send it to zawahiri right i mean that that to me says that really is the key that uh, this was bin laden as well yeah, now there's a there's a fourth file backup, which I didn't send you, Bill, in preparation from the show today. So this is on me. Uh, it's because I've been going through going through all the files and trying to, to put this all together for the show. Um, this fourth file, which we'll post again, um, maybe when the show comes out, it's a five page letter from Zawahiri to Drukdel. So we're just talking about how this author, Bin Laden, says keep Zawahiri informed because he's the one basically in charge of following up on the affairs in the Islamic Maghreb. Well, here's a file from October 2007. From Zawahiri to Drukdel, and it's discussing a number of issues, but I thought you'd, you'd appreciate this one. One of the things that Zawahiri's commenting on is the charter, and what's the charter? I think it's the GSPC's charter, which becomes then used as the basis for AQIM. And Zawahiri offers his comments. He says, by the way, first of all, Abu Yahya Libby had commented on the charter and, and gave you his thoughts. You know, that overall, the charter is very good. But here are some places where we, we may differ and want you to change some things. And then, of course, Zawahiri, the long-winded intellectual that he is, had to comment himself on what he thought was wrong with the, with the charter. Um, and one of the things that he took issue with is that there was this article, apparently, that said that it's not permissible to rebel against the Muslim ruler, even if he's unjust and sinful. Apparently, there's a reference to this in the original charter. And of course, Zawahiri knows that's a big no-no uh, in the jihadi scheme. And he goes on and explains why that needs to be revised based on historical examples, but also for uh, religious issues pertaining to religious jurisprudence. Um, but again, this is, an, this is an example, this file from October 2007, where you can see Zawahiri is, in effect, corresponding with and giving Drukdel direction and is in fact commenting on the charter for what becomes AQIM. It's GSPC's charter, which is used as the basis for um, AQIM. Now, here's another file. I'm going to double up on you here with stuff I'm surprised. Tom, can I comment on that real quick? I mean, no, absolutely not. You cannot. You cannot. No, I have to to filibuster. (laughs) Of course. Go ahead. What were you going to say? uh, I mean, this should come as, again, as no surprise, right? We found uh, another correspondence. I was waiting for you to say it. The Pakistani Taliban. The Pakistani Taliban, exactly. Where I believe that was um, Atiyah and uh, and Abu Yahya Libby were responding to the charter. and they were actually very forceful in, in, in making suggestions to the Pakistani Taliban movement of the Taliban in Pakistan to their charter. So, 
you know, again, we see, and those two obviously senior Al Qaeda leadership. Yeah, totally. And so, yeah, the, the, we should really this. None of this should surprise us when we see it. No, when I was uh, reviewing this late last night, I I thought of you in the Pakistan Taliban one because I remember when that came out, you saw that right away and said, you know, this is them revising the Pakistan Taliban's charter. You yeah. know. Um, and it's an example, again, where Pakistani Taliban is one of those organizations um, where there's been a little bit of disconnected dots, but but I think the U.S. government has even recognized in its formal designation yeah. of the Pakistani Taliban that it has a symbiotic relationship with al-Qaeda. You know, a U.S. official described it to me years ago that al-Qaeda likes to play the shell game. I think that's a good way of putting it. Sure. You know? And yeah. The, but... And, and, and Bill, what's 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 the significance of that? I mean, they're, they're revising the charter of an organization. That shows a pretty... A pretty yeah. Pretty large degree of uh, control or, or uh, direction, right? Yeah, right. And there's there's been other reports too, right? That we've seen where they were they were telling the Pakistani Taliban to stop poaching from the Al Qaeda cadres that were operating in the in the tribal areas and things like that. And there, there's direct orders. I mean, so you know if that doesn't, you know, I, I always believe that the the TT the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan is is an Al Qaeda branch, but unofficial. So. Yeah, and they, of course they had that uh, basically celebration of Al Qaeda just recently in that video that we yes. were documenting, the one that, that starred the infamous Siraj Haqqani, which I love because he's of course now the deputy emir of, uh, of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, which is a Taliban totalitarian regime. Um, you know, of course uh, we know about the Haqqani's relationship with the Pakistani Taliban going back many, many years, harboring and working with the Pakistani Taliban. So that's not really a surprise. But again, it shows the overlap of this stuff and how you have to really be careful in, 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 in putting together the pieces to understand how this all works. Yeah, and you um, know, look, I can't, you know, when you put all this together, how could you not come to the conclusion that Al-Qaeda's general command or whatever you want to call Al-Qaeda central, however you want to describe it, is not intimately involved in the details of its affiliate in the operations of its affiliates. I mean, it, it you can't come to any other conclusion when you see that, and yet people still work do their damnedest to try to disconnect, disconnect the those dots. dots. Yeah, yeah, disconnect the dots. I mean, there's just too much evidence. I mean, there's there's too much evidence in these files of, of, of examples of it, you know. And again, we're going through them, and it's a little a little bit clumsy on my behalf. I apologize for trying to do it this way, but just trying to give you examples of of what we've been looking at for all these years. And here's another one. This I'm now, now I'm going to double up on you with an example I didn't give you beforehand, Bill. Um, this is a letter just following up. So we just talked about a letter in October 2007 from Zawahiri to Drukdel. Here's another one from March 2008 to from Zawahiri to Drukdel. Um, in this case, remember at the time, Al-Qaeda was agitating against Denmark. This had to do with... Um, you know, the allegedly blasphemous materials that came out of Denmark and elsewhere, the cartoons that um, Al-Qaeda was trying to agitate and trying to basically uh, strike back and, and supposedly avenge Muslims for this supposed offense. And he's he's telling Jerkdell um, that basically we want AQIM to agitate on behalf of this issue, that he got instructions from bin Laden, and bin Laden wanted Zawahiri to relay this to Jerkdell. And so here's a letter in March 6, 2008, with Zawahiri explaining, you know, this is what we want you to do. You know, he says, you know, you know, the Danes have committed a repetition of the encroachment upon the prophet. And even though they do not dare to mention the Jews badly, in other words, they're, they're supposedly negative about the prophet of Islam, but not the Jews. Otherwise, they'd be subject to punishment and imprisonment according to their laws. And so then he goes on and on and on. Of course, this is somewhat short-winded, I guess, for for Zawahiri's sake. But basically, he's telling um, he's telling <laughs> Jerkdell, do what you can to go after go after the Danes. Um, you know, again, more evidence. And by the way, Bill, I found going through the files, this letter was also sent to the Islamic State of Iraq at the same time in two thousand eight. And Zawahiri sends it to Abu Omar al Baghdadi, and he sends it to um, you know. Uh, Al-Muhajir, who was the other leader, Abu Hamza Al-Muhajir, who was the other leader of the Islamic State of Iraq at the time. Both of them, he sends it to both of them. Again, you know, giving instructions to the so-called affiliates in different ways. Exactly. I, You know, I, I, I don't think I even need to comment on this. It's, uh, you know, just further supporting evidence, right? Yeah, now we, we have other evidence too. We went through the files. We found a bunch of files or some files anyway talking about ransoms for hostages. Um, you know, this is something we wrote up in 2013, I remember, even before the files were released about this, that, you know, AQIM itself was talking about how Al-Qaeda senior leadership is overseeing the hostage operations and that Bin Laden wanted to use AQIM's hostages to force France to withdraw from Afghanistan and for other reasons. And, you know, you had AQIM commanders even saying that Al-Qaeda senior leadership has stepped in to oversee these negotiations. Um, again, another another example of connectivity or connective tissue between what's happening in Africa 
and Al-Qaeda senior leadership, which was then at that time, according to these files and everything else, headquartered in Pakistan and, of course, Afghanistan. Yeah. And, you know, look, I, the, the hostage, right? We Again, we're going to go back to, to Pakistan, right? We've seen these types of um, issues again. You know, I, 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 can, I, can, I can't recall the direct um, files, but I, I re- you'll, you'll probably remember this time. You have that brilliant memory where they where Al Qaeda um, general command would be talking about getting their cuts from the uh, the hostage uh, ransoms. Yeah, this is, this is the, this is the one you helped. There was a report in the New York Times you helped them piece together. Actually, yes, which that's had right. To, that's right. Had to do with the Afghan official was kidnapped by the Pakistani yes. Taliban. Yes, and was being held. They're using the, the Connies were basically the middlemen between the negotiations. We're negotiating everything again. The Connies, which we're now laying down before in Afghanistan as the U.S. retreats. Yay, America. Um, the U.S., you know, basically at that time, Al-Qaeda was coordinating these ransoms and, and basically talking about who, who was going to get what in terms of, you know, and it was sort of funny in that correspondence as a separate memo. You remember where basically people started, the other jihadis started to figure out they got these billions of dollars in ransoms, right, for this official and for others. And everybody started to want their cut. You, met, you right. alluded to the mob the mob earlier. It was sort of that kind of dynamic, yeah. you know, where basically people started wanting their, their cut of the whole thing, yeah. um, you know. But yeah, but that, that's another example where, you know, Al-Qaeda is working through these other groups to accomplish its goals. Yeah, yeah you know, again, uh, repeating myself, but, you know, this is what uh, direction from the highest level looks like. It's uh, yeah, a lot, a lot more, a lot more direction, a lot more guidance, a lot more connectivity than has been previously assumed. Now, this brings me to the last example we're going to go through today. We got I got a ton of examples, but I, I see the clock is running here. And, you know, if you want me to filibuster for the next seven hours on Bin Laden's files, we can do that. Um, but um, but we'll talk about. Files are recovered outside Bilan's conference. This These is my, are- uh, you know, look, Tom, uh, I'm going to just. Uh, go ahead, th- go for it, yeah. This is my, of all the files we've gotten and st- from the Bin Laden files and everything, I think this is my favorite. Um, I'll let you explain it, but I just no, explain found. Why it's, explain, explain why it's your favorite. Go ahead, go for it. I mean, yeah, first so- of all, we got we got to give a hat tip to the badass that Rukmini Kalamaki yeah. is from the New York Times, right? Rukmini. She's just a badass reporter, and, and we hope to have her on the podcast. I'm hoping to have her on. She's somebody who really we admire in terms of her reporting. And I know why I find these files that she found fascinating. But go ahead, go for it. Yeah, so she gets, she get, she um, goes into what I believe it was Northern Mali after um, after uh, Ansar Dean occupied the area, and then they were driven out. And Ansar Dean was, of course, another Al Qaeda cutout. Exactly. Um, and she goes and she finds all these documents in a building. I believe it was in Timbuktu, if I'm correct. You know, one of these documents is a correspondence between uh, Waheshi, of course, was AQAP's Amir and ultimately became Al Qaeda's general manager and deputy, and Drukdel. And Waheshi is advising Drukdel on. Um, He's actually giving a – so al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula had occupied large areas of southern and central Yemen from 2011 to 2012. And Wahishi gives this basically an after-action report. He tells him, hey, this was what worked. This is what didn't. You know, don't he, – he gives him details like don't, uh, don't try to enforce your religious views too harshly too quickly – you know, the people have lived in sin for a long time. So I'm paraphrasing here. So that you, That's you know, paraphrase. You, you need to, um, you need to like bring it to them slowly and, you know, bring them along with it. He tells them, you know, just all of these operational details. It's just a fact, you know, and this is from, so, you know, you're wondering, is it he's sending it as the head of AQAP, at the head of one branch to the head of another branch? as just sort of like some advice or was he at that time sending it as, well, we don't really know what year he began his uh, position as Al-Qaeda's general manager or, or deputy. So we don't, we don't really know the, what, when that started. So we don't know how, what position he's taking from, but even if at the very least, if it's doing it from branch to branch, you're seeing that connective tissue again between the two branches. And I just, I mean, I guess it's probably a, a, a lot of my affection for this is the way Rukmini covered this. I think if, if I recall, Tom, nobody was interested in this information, right? Yeah, I want her. I want her to tell a story because yeah. we'll, we'll tell we'll tell our story from the Bin Laden files. Let her tell a story. Yeah, of, right, right. I'll I'll yeah. leave it at that. And she, so there's she, a lot. She, of- she found evidence that was inconvenient for certain narratives, and 
it turns out the people that adhere to those narratives don't want to hear it, you know, and that's just sort of the, that's basically our lives, right? And all this yeah. stuff, right? I mean, you could just point to all these, we're going to get to that in example again on Afghanistan in a second, because I got a, I got a funny one we got to finish the show with. This yeah, movie. I mean, I mean, and so, so and ahead, just to, yeah. just to make, I mean, look, one of the Bin Laden files on, um, actually proved information that I had gotten and published and was actually ridiculed a little bit about, you know, hiding the relationship between Shabab. So you think I'd love that one or, or ones related to Pakistani Taliban, but somehow it winds up being an AQIM related document. But, uh, God bless Rukmini for, for what she did and what she continues to do in, in, in the work in this uh, correspondence. And I, I really hope we can get her on one day soon. Well, and again, these files, it was all about Emirate building, right? You yep. know, it was all about building the Emirate in West Africa and around Mali. Again, something where we've been certain analysts have, have held through the years. I don't mean to criticize people because I mean people get make mistakes, but I what bothers me is when certain ideas stick and they're just not based yeah. on evidence, you know? And there was this this sort of mantra that Al Qaeda is not really interested in acquiring or territory or building a caliphate. Nonsense. That's what they're all about. And you could see in those files that Rukmini captured, that was what the whole discussion was. And my favorite part of the files actually was a little wink wink about Ansar al Sharia. Yeah, so oh, yes. Yes, remember, that's right. remember, remember Waheshi says to Drukdel, you know, you know, if the relationship between you and Ansar al Sharia is the same as ours, wink wink, you know, basically, you know. And what he's saying there is <laughs> yeah. Ansar al Sharia yeah. was a, stood up as a political front for. IQAP in Yemen. Nobody ever disputed that. We had these arguments with people back in the 2011, 2012 timeframe about Ansar al-Sharia in Tunisia, uh, Egypt, and Libya, all conspicuously headed by people with known al-Qaeda connections, by the way, or former al-Qaeda veterans, by the way, who had gotten out of prison, you know, and supposedly we're supposed to believe this is all just a giant coincidence. Again, you can add this to the list, folks, of episodes we're going to do, because I'm going to do, I'm going to do my rant on Ansar al-Sharia one day and revisit this. Um, but, you know, subsequently, you know, it comes out that we were right in Ansar al-Sharia. They were fronts for al-Qaeda. Of course they were. You know, I mean, you can see that in designations. You can see that in various literature. You can see that in stuff they've even said. AQIM eventually admits that they were backing Ansar al-Sharia in Libya and Tunisia, you know. Um, but that's my favorite part of the thing is yeah. that internally we're, you know, we're the Americans are debating whether or not Ansar al-Sharia is really part of al-Qaeda or not or, or part of the al-Qaeda web. Here's one al-Qaeda commander saying to another, wink, wink, you know, we yeah. all know what's going on here, you know. You know, and, and one one more point, you know, if Al-Qaeda wasn't interested in gaining territory and only wanted to attack the West, why did it make the effort to take control of southern Yemen, northern Mali, large areas of Somalia, supports the Pakistan, the Afghan Taliban's jihad, declared the Islamic um, Emirate of Waziristan in Pakistan, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The, you know, it, I've, I've always, that's just a willful misunderstanding. Uh, misunderstanding of what's happening uh, with Al Qaeda is all about, and you know when people want to make up narratives like that, it's it really does a, a disservice to our field. It, the evidence is all there that Al Qaeda is all about building the caliphate, and they have. And, and, you know, this is what this letter discusses: the sacrifices that that AQAP made to um, to try to establish that emirate in Yemen. And what worked, what didn't. Um, I remember he says they lost like 500 fighters. And, you know, it's it's a very detailed um, after action report. And again, I just it's it's fascinating. These types of things. We, I just can't get enough of it. Yeah. And, and of course, there's still AQAM is still pursuing the long term caliphate building project in West Africa today. Um, you know, Drukdel played a big role in that and standing up, you know, this was all, this episode's all about Drukdel up to this point anyway, Abdul Malik Drukdel, this AQAM Amir, longtime figure in Al Qaeda circles who was killed on June 3rd, a very significant figure, uh, important kill for the U France, the U S and its allies in the region, but there's still busy working toward building a caliphate in West Africa. It's a long-term vision. It's not something that's near fruition at all right now, of course. Um, you know, but it's not the um, feckless, you know, delusion or absurd fantasy that, that John Brennan, who was President Obama's counterterrorism advisor, made it out to be in 2012. You know, and it, this is a motivating part of their ideology and why they fight and what they're trying to do. And it's all throughout the documents they're talking about that. That's this what they're, they're all about trying to do. Um, and, and, and what you're seeing now is the U.S. basically is trying to get out of the game of preventing them from building a caliphate. The U.S. doesn't really want to be in these fights at all while they're still fighting. Uh, and that's why it's known as the endless jihad. Um, 
you know, look, again, I've said it a couple times in this episode, we'll post links to these documents so you can you can read through them. But I, we got to close the show this week on something I find funny. I just, I mean, at this point, this is all ludicrous. So, um, but General McKenzie, the CENTCOM commander, apparently attended this event in D.C. at one of these think tanks. Uh, of course, we work for a think tank in D.C., even though we're not in D.C. Um, and or apparently via Zoom, I would guess. I haven't seen a full transcript of what he said, but apparently he said something along the lines of that the Taliban is not fully complying with the February 29th withdrawal agreement that um, was signed between the U.S. and the Taliban. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. Now, I mean, the Taliban has to do minimal amount of stuff to, to comply with this agreement, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's the, the, the onus is, the burden is not on them. Uh, you know, this is a withdrawal deal. Um, you know, there was, there's this language that we've critiqued multiple times about their counterterrorism assurances when it comes to Al-Qaeda. And basically, McKenzie said something along the lines of Al-Qaeda is still present in Afghanistan. I got to pull the full remarks to get exactly what he said, but he, he said something along those lines. Well, Bill, I noticed just in the last day that, um, as before we're recording this, the Taliban issued a statement in Pashto on one of its Voice of Jihad websites in which they denied that al-Qaeda is even present in Afghanistan. So yeah. they actually, this is this is now the first statement I could see that they've said in some time that actually explicitly mentions al-Qaeda, and it's to tell a lie, to say that al-Qaeda isn't even there, that it hasn't been present since the days of Islamic Emirate uh, before that fell in 2001. I mean, this is just a bunch of baloney. But now we're supposed to believe that the Taliban is our counterterrorism partner and is going to prevent al-Qaeda from attacking the West and hunt them down and destroy them in Afghanistan, as Secretary Pompeo claimed. Meanwhile, they're issuing statements saying, nah, al-Qaeda's not even here. You know, I mean, it's just yep. ludicrous. They not just Al Qaeda. They say no foreign fighters whatsoever. Oh, I know, but this 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 is now this is a new statement though. You covered <laughs> yep. the one about no foreign yeah, fighters. Yeah, right. They've said they've said that over and over again. This is now saying Al Qaeda isn't there yeah. specifically. So you know, in response to McKenzie, because McKenzie yep. is saying you know Al Qaeda is still there and it's a problem. You know, and now now we're supposed to believe the Taliban is going to come clean about all this and and work with us against Al Qaeda, according to the State Department, where they're not even admitting that Al Qaeda is even there. You know. And it brings me to a point, why does that matter in the connected tissue here? Well, you know, Abdul-Malik Drukdel, as the emir of AQAM, was presumably killed on June 3rd, according to the French in the U.S. Um, he's just the latest al-Qaeda regional commander to be killed. Uh, you know, they've, they've suffered now, al-Qaeda suffered some losses in recent months at the top echelon of their regional branches. We talked about in a previous episode how Qasem al-Rami was killed in January of this year in Yemen, and he was replaced by Khaled Batarfi. And of course, in September of 2019, Asim Umar, who was the first emir of al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent, was killed in a Taliban stronghold in Musa Kalahelman. Um, of course, this is an example of the type of al-Qaeda guys who are running around Afghanistan that the Taliban is pretending aren't there. You know, here's Asim Umar. Now, he may not have been the emir of AQIS at the time of his death. He may have moved on to another position in al-Qaeda's hierarchy, but he was certainly the first emir of AQIS. So there you got three guys who played a big role in, in forming al-Qaeda's regional architecture and also senior leadership roles, we would argue, and some evidence, and we have direct evidence in some of the cases that that's true. And they're all take that, taken out in recent months, but you don't you don't think that's the end of any of them, right, Bill? They're going to keep going. No, like the, the, again, the, they're resilient. They have a deep bench. Seymour uh, Moore was what? Uh, well, we don't know. You, like you said, we don't know what his. He was the first Amir of AQIS, but again, again, yeah. Al Qaeda hasn't released a statement about his death either. Yeah, so you they mentioned earlier no. about how, how you know some of these guys are going unremarked these days. There's no martyrdom statement for him, you know. So yeah, it, I mean, you know, he led for at least four, uh, four or five years. Uh, Waheshi was, or I'm sorry, Samuel Remy had five years. His predecessor had ten, almost a decade. Yeah, because Samuel Remy actually had all the way back to 2009 as yeah. a senior leader of AKP. Yeah, right. He was a military you know, commander and, uh, and then Amir, yeah. And, um, you know. Uh, and Jordel goes all the way back yeah, to, you know. I'm, I'm I mean, trying to calculate days. in my head. I mean, the 1990s. Yeah, he yeah, goes back it, to the 1990s. I mean, this is the point. We're going to conclude this episode on this point. Listen, this is great that Jordel has been taken out of the game. This guy started waging jihad, as far as we know, in the 1990s, maybe even earlier, you know, depending on what, what his root to the story is on Afghanistan going back in the days. Yeah, and, you know, and we're and here in 2020, 2020, and we just got a senior Al Qaeda leader who's been in the game since the 1990s. And yeah, is yes. arguably a, a leader of uh, jihadist operations in North Africa, now West Africa, for what, two decades, right? GSPC plus, yeah, you know, at his time at GSPC. 16, 16 years at least. GSPC yeah. in 2004, he takes over in 2004. Yeah. He, he, he oversees the merger of GSPC to become AQIM in 2006, 2007. And he spawns a new Al-Qaeda group in, in the group for the support of Islam and Muslims, which takes over, which is fighting in West Africa and through, you know, still getting support of AQIM. I mean, this is not, you know, 
Drew Dell's out of the game, but his his heirs are not. His yeah. former They've comrades been, are not. His fighters. They're aren't. waiting a long time. They've had a lot of uh, they've had a lot of experience under him. Uh, they've been in this game just as long as most of them, just as long as him. Yeah, we, the, our our problem isn't you know. Yeah, we believe take them out. We're just not taking them out fast enough, and and that that really is the problem. And it's too late, I think. I think the, the, the wins now are yes. against these missions anyway. Yeah, so, the French went out of uh, North Africa. I mean, the New York Times had a great piece a couple of, uh, maybe a month or two ago about how the French are looking for the exit in, in North Africa. And, and but, you know, the, the, Talib- the Taliban's denial of al-Qaeda's presence in Afghanistan brings up a point, Bill. Do you think al-Qaeda can deny the presence of al-Qaeda in West Africa and that would justify the French withdrawal? Do you think they would call for that? <laughs> that <laughs> might be. Uh, maybe that's You know, exactly. maybe if al-Qaeda just comes out and says, no, no, no al-Qaeda to see here. Don't worry about it. We're all good. You yeah. know, maybe that's just that's enough to, to get everybody out, you know. So yeah, maybe we can issue about- a video from uh, while, while in West Africa, right, in the desert, issue that video and say, no, we're not here. And everyone will believe them. Yeah. Well, uh, we're a little jaded, if you can't tell, about all this stuff, but um, we're trying to get into some no. details this week about, uh, no, no, jaded, cynical, you know, I don't, I don't like skeptical, by the way, because skepticism is sort of the heart of Western civilization when you get to the whole history of it, so skepticism is a great thing, but jaded, cynical, yeah, we're, those are, that's definitely where we're at. In any event, you know, so this we try to go into a little bit of detail this week on Abdul, Abdul Malik Trichdel and put him in perspective and his career and what he's done. Uh, the French said he's dead. The U.S. Africa, Africa Command says he's dead. Um, it'd be great if the U.S. government could confirm what the French have said about his role, not just as AQAM's Amir, but as a senior figure, senior leader within Al-Qaeda's global hierarchy. Um, of course, we're still waiting for such confirmation. Um, but we'll keep plugging along here because it's an endless jihad after all. And thank you for listening to this week's episode of Generation Jihad. Please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your shows. And we'll see you again next week.